Good morning, everyone. When is the deadline for wishing people Happy New Year? I hope I haven't missed it yet. There are a lot of you who are back here from places like St. Louis and Pennsylvania and Ohio and different things, and I haven't seen you in the new year. So there are many of you I have to say Happy New Year to because it's great to be able to welcome you this morning. Now, I have a confession to make before, by the way, this is not necessarily part of the sermon. Okay, I've got to make sure I keep my confessions different than the preaching of the word. I guess I'm 55 years old and peer pressure still gets to me. I decided, you know how it's a pretty much a basic human need, you have to belong. So I wanted to belong myself. So what I did was catch the same stuff that everybody else has <laughs> around here. I was kind of looking at things at Spruce Creek and just feeling a little nostalgic this Christmas season and kind of going, I feel left out. What, what is it I need? I've got enough material possessions. I go, I need a great flu bug, you know, a good cold or something like that just to get me going. So, by the way, this is me feeling better. Earlier this week, forget it. So if you, you know... Uh, kind of heard me at all through the week. You know I didn't sound this good, and I'm praying that my voice holds out. Either that, or I was telling, I don't know where Betty Jo went to, but I was telling her, there she is, I was telling her I could do, the deeper my voice gets, I can do a great James Earl Jones. <laughs> you know, staying, where, where's Jackson and some of my buddies? If I stay with the Star Wars theme, I'll just blurt out every now and then, I am your father. And it really sounds authentic coming from things. Okay, so now, I say this because we are, as Vic mentioned, we're a Presbyterian and Reformed confessional church. I'm going to be practical with that. You know what that means? You all are mandated by Scripture to give me grace. Okay, it's required in the Word that, since we preach a doctrine of grace, that you have to give me grace this morning. Let's together turn our hearts and our attention to God's Word, and let's lift up our hearts in a time of prayer, first of all. We come before you, dependent Father. We ought to recognize our need all the time, our utter dependence and helplessness. And I guess I thank you even in these times of common colds and things such as that, that it's a reminder that Jesus, you came as Vic read in the Nicene Creed for us and for our salvation. You were incarnate. You came in the flesh. You suffered colds. You suffered flus. You know what all this feels like. And so I just thank you for your humanity. I pray that we learn of you this morning that as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth, your spirit would illumine our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Mark, just to kind of give you a heads up where we're going this winter and into the spring. We'll be doing the rest of the Gospel of Mark right up to Easter Sunday. It kind of works out nicely that Mark 16 is about the resurrection and huh, last I heard, that's what Easter's all about. And so from now till then, we will be finishing up our study of the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And as we read the Word of God, I'd like you to ask you, if you're able, to stand as we read together in worship of our Lord, His Word. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. 
In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Friends, this is the very word of the Lord. It is given by the triune God of love because he loves us. You may be seated. You know, we just got finished Advent season, and during Advent season we said that it's a time of waiting, it is a time of anticipation, it is a time of longing, and kind of still walking in the wilderness and waiting for the second Advent of Jesus, for his return. And thus we still struggle with all the issues, relational issues of of tension, we struggle with kind of our plans being shattered or changing, with disappointment, we struggle. And one of the things that's inevitable that we struggle with are power struggles. They happen in organizations, they happen, yes, even in churches, they happen throughout things. And so I need to share with you, it's 2018, it's the first sermon of 2018, and I know resolutions are a part of the new year. I'm kind of iffy. I'm on the fence where I stand. I think that's largely because I really am bad at them. I can't keep it. And after a while, it discourages me, and I kind of get, why bother with that? But I'm going to tell you one thing. I'm very firm. I'm going to give you a firm conviction right now. I'm not repenting of my sports illustrations. So sorry if that bothers you. I know I have a penchant for them. You know, I really thought about it. I've not given up my love of sports. And so here's a sports illustration. Being sick this week, I tried to keep as much, as best as I can uh, to my routine. And Rick, I really appreciated during discipleship. You over there back there? Okay. I really appreciated during discipleship hour, Rick shared. He was sick as well this week. See that? We're both the same age and, you know, that peer pressure thing. And he talked about getting in the Word and stuff like that and kind of drifting off every now. I related to that. I tried to stick to my normal routine as best I can. Coffee, time in the Word. And then usually after that, I'll pick up my phone and it's headlines. And I'm looking. And one occurred that really made me happy. It said, Patriots on the Brink. Now, for those of you who don't know who the Patriots are, they are the New England Patriots. And I am a New York fan. So I was like, I've got to read this. And now, of course, I called my brother who lives up in Boston right away to say, what does he think about it? And he said right away, this is fake news. Don't believe a word that you're hearing about this. But it's about a power struggle. The article went out about a power struggle, about what they call the big three. The coach, Bill Belichick, the quarterback, the golden boy, Tom Brady, and the owner, Robert Kraft. And without going into all the details, the article is simply pointing out how even though they have won five championships together, they've built one of the great dynasties in the history of the NFL. Over the last 17 years, they all still want their own way. They all still want power. I know, shocking, isn't it? Human beings wanting their own way. Okay, there's the surprise of the sermon. They all wanted their own power. They all wanted their own control. They all want to call the shots. Now, how does this relate to the Gospel of Mark? 
Well, we've been saying that Mark's kind of, the way he puts together, the way he structures the entire gospel, 16 chapters, he divides it into two halves. The first half, chapters 1 through 8, are basically addressing the question, who is Jesus? Who is this king? So you have things of him uh, healing the leper. You have him calming the storm, cease be still. You have him doing things of love and compassion and healing. Who is this king? Then you get to the second half, chapters 9 through 16, and it's all about what is this king all about? What is his goal, his intention, his mission, his agenda? And we learn that he is the king who has come to die. He is the king who has come to die for us, for our sins. So when we read every individual story within this second half of Mark's gospel, we have to put it in that overarching literary context where the tension is getting thicker and thicker. The plot is dramatically moving forward, anticipating the climax where Jesus will achieve the triumph of the gospel and the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in the most surprising and unexpected ways through the cross. So here in this section, Mark chapters 11 and 12, Mark is demonstrating the authority of Jesus in what commentators call controversy stories. That is accounts where Jesus' authority is being challenged. His wisdom is being questioned. The leadership in the, in the sermon last week that Andrew preached, it was on the Pharisees and the Herodians challenging Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar. Back in chapter 11, we saw Jesus question, saying, you're doing great things. We see you doing all these works. By what authority are you doing these things? Who's giving you the power to do these things? So we're seeing the controversy mount. This week, we're introduced to another group, Sadducees. Commentator Robert Stein says, even as the Pharisees had come seeking to trap Jesus with a political question, the question about taxes, So now the Sadducees come seeking to trick him with a theological one. If they can trap Jesus, embarrass him by showing that his belief in the doctrine of the resurrection is mere foolishness, absurdity, they can then hope that his authority as a teacher, his authority as wisdom, as a prophet, will be weakened. Jesus, of course, confronts this trap directly. And in doing so, we see that he brings up two very relevant, very practical issues for us. We learn two things from this text in terms of applying it now to our lives. Because this text personally challenges us to ask two questions. What is your authority and what is your hope? What is your authority in order to know not only what you believe, but why you believe it? And what is your hope in order to be able to face an uncertain future with security? What is your authority and what is your hope? Let's take this first. Look down with me at verse 24 because in one sense this is really the key to the text. And it contains, (coughs) excuse me, Jesus' answer to their theological and personal challenge. They've just laid out the story. We'll go through that in a few minutes. And Jesus says to them directly, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Both practical issues, both relevant issues are contained in that response of Jesus. You do not know the Scriptures, so what do you base your authority on? If it is not the word of God, 
then it could be anything. And if it's not the Word of God, then you do not have God as He has chosen to reveal Himself to us. You have a God of your own creating. A God of your own making. A God who is your own creation. A God made in your image, not you made in His image. And then Jesus says you do not know the power of God. How can you have hope without the power of God? We need to know what we believe and base that belief on the authority of God's word, not only to give us meaning and purpose in the present, but if we're going to have hope and security in the future. We live in a very restless and uncertain time. We need a secure hope. And we cannot have a secure hope without both the scriptures and the power of God. What is your authority? What do you base your belief in? I want to illustrate this by a particular thing. Evie and I right now, we're enjoying a show. I'm not sure how you define binge watching, but I guess we're semi-binge watching. We're taking a month or so to watch a show on Netflix right now called The Crown. I don't know if any of you all have heard of The Crown, but it's the history of the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, who came to the throne of the United Kingdom in 1952 at the tender age of 26, and is still queen today, 2018, at the age of 91. We all know our eldest son, Charles, who's the heir to the throne, and we remember that Charles was married to Princess Diana. Princess Diana captured the world's attention and died unexpectedly, very sadly, at a very young age back in 1997. Now, I have to again, I guess this is a sermon filled with personal confessions, because here comes another one. I frustrate my wife to no end watching television with her because I have to pause every 30 seconds because I'm watching TV and in my other hand is either my phone or my iPad where I'm looking up the history. I either have Google or Wikipedia or something looking up. So wait a second, who are her children? Time out. When were they born? Time out. And I'm doing all of this as we're watching the show. And I'm watching Evie go, ooh, she's not happy with me at this particular. But this was interesting because reading up and studying a little bit of the history, historians tell us, so I can't say I made this up, so this isn't from me. Historians tell us that after Diana's death, there were books of remembrance that were put in various buildings throughout the country, largely places like churches and cathedrals where people could sign their names and express their sadness and their sorrow, a way of, a tangible way of kind of expressing their love for Diana. Historians point out that many fascinating things people would put down in expressing their thoughts, especially their beliefs concerning life after death. So, for example, here's just some of them. Somebody wrote, Diana became a star in the sky. Somebody else says, God wanted her company and so, and so took her from us sooner than we'd expected. Somebody else wrote, she was an angel in disguise and now had gone back just to be a normal, everyday, regular old angel. I guess there are degrees there in terms of that. Here's the point that this illustrates. What do they base their beliefs on? And now let's, forgive me for pointing a finger, let's point it at me and point it at all of us, but let's ask ourselves the question, not just what do you believe, but why do you believe it? Not just what we know about God, but why do you believe what you believe 
about God. See, we need to know not only what we believe, but on what basis we believe it. And Jesus tells the Sadducees, you are wrong because you do not know the Scriptures. Because it is only the Scriptures that reveal who God is in His person, His character, His will, as well as His plan of salvation for us. Now, what do we learn about the Sadducees? Who were they? And why are they challenging Jesus? Well, they were one of the groups involved in Judaism in Jesus' day. They were part of the wealthy ruling class. They were actually part of the priestly aristocracy. We learn, verse 18 tells us directly, they deny the resurrection, so they deny life after death. And as theological conservatives to them, resurrection would be this dangerous new idea. Who is this Jesus coming up with this crazy new idea about resurrection? One other thing that we learned from this text is that they viewed the early books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses from Genesis to Deuteronomy as authoritative, but they did not trust the later books of the Old Testament, books of the prophets, men like Daniel or Ezekiel. And they denied that the resurrection was taught in the books of Moses. So the books that they looked to for their authority, they said that doesn't teach the resurrection. Historians also claim that for groups like the Sadducees, beliefs in the doctrine, doctrines like the resurrection would also be politically risky. So quoting from one historian, he writes, it had become popular, particularly during the revolutionary movements of the second century BC, what we call the intertestamental period, as a way of affirming that the martyrs had a glorious future awaiting them not immediately after death, but in the eventual resurrection when they would be given new bodies. People who believe that God is going to remake, recreate the whole world, including their own dead bodies, are much more likely to do daring and risky things. Wealthy, ruling classes prefer people not to think thoughts like that. So here are the Sadducees with this mistrust of Jesus going, here he is mounting a revolutionary movement. So they present what they think is a theological conundrum to Jesus. They're assuming they're going to be able to trap him. So they approach him. And if you look at the text following verse 18, they, they seem to be coming with such respect, do they not? They approach him and they say, teacher. You can almost, they're th we're showing such deference to Jesus. Teacher, we have a question for you. So, it's kind of like this. The narrative kind of goes around, uh, Jesus, you believe in the Old Testament, right? And Jesus goes, yeah. Okay, well, the Old Testament has this law. Ever heard of it? It's called the Law of Leveret Marriage. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. And the law says that if a man dies and he's married but he's childless... His brother must marry the widow and keep the family line and inheritance intact. You're familiar with that, Jesus, right? You've heard of that law of lever and marriage? Jesus, yes. Well, let's say, throw out a hypothetical for you. Jesus, let's say this happens seven times. You know, seven is the number of completeness. It's the number of perfection. Seven times the man dies and finally the woman dies and Jesus, you believe in the resurrection, right? Uh-huh. Well, if everyone comes back to life, whose wife will the woman be? You can almost smell them just kind of going, yeah, gotcha. 
And in fact, commentator Robert Stein again so appropriately puts, he says, makes a great point at this juncture. He says, the cynical nature of the questioning and the line of questioning is evident at this point. Like the question of the Pharisees and Herodians, it is downright hypocritical and does not seek enlightenment. They're not looking for knowledge on the issue. They are looking to embarrass and humiliate Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? You do not know the Scriptures, nor do you know the power of God. As one writer put it, resurrection does not mean resuscitation, coming back into exactly the same sort of physical life as before, but transformation with a different sort of bodily life. And in fact, in verse 25, when it says they are like angels in heaven, that does not mean our future is a disembodied future, because that does not mean we're like angels in every respect, but only in this respect. See, what is the context Jesus is talking about? He's talking about marriage. And so only in this respect, that like angels, we will not marry in the new heavens and new earth. We will not marry in the new world. As a matter of fact, as commentators point out, we will not need to marry, for there will be no more death, thus no more need for procreation. And with an uncountable number of brothers and sisters, mothers and children, the necessity to fill the need for companionship will no longer be there, will no longer be needed. Friends, what is your authority? Not only what you believe, but why do you believe it? Do you know what you believe? And do you know why you believe it? Do you know the scriptures? Do you have the God of the Bible? Or a God of your own creating? Coming up with your own ideas about who God is. Making God in your image. Not submitting to God as he reveals himself. That's the first point. What is your authority? But if you have the scripture, see you need that because you need to have that authority because you also need to know what is your hope. Look with me at verse 26 and look at the rest of Jesus' response. Jesus says, and as for the dead being raised... Have you not read in the book of Moses? And I love this, how he is going to make his case citing what they believe in. They hold the books of Moses as authoritative. Jesus says, uh, that's fine, I think I authored that. Let's kind of let's go there. So I love that he does that. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the book, about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. See, now in the second part, the Sadducees do not know the power of God. See, not knowing the Scriptures, they couldn't possibly know the power of God. They couldn't know God's covenant faithfulness. They couldn't know His deliverance. They can't know the power of God. They can't have a sure and certain hope, a life-giving hope. Robert Stein again comments, he says, this is such a dangerous place to be in an uncertain world. He says, what the Sadducees, where their problem is, is they limit God's power to what they can know about this life. They limit God's and his power to what makes sense to them, what they can see, what they can feel, what they can touch, what they can taste. They're limiting God. Again, they're making God in their image. So they're limiting the power of God, to what they can control. Now I wonder how we do the same thing. Have you ever thought about the ways in our life that we limit God? With our areas of mistrust, or our areas of misbelief, 
or areas we hold on, we've always heard it this way before. It couldn't possibly be any different. Or I've always experienced it this way before. Are you willing to challenge the areas where you may not know the power of God? William Lane commenting on these verses say, when properly understood, the passage cited here in verse 26 bears eloquent witness to the truth of the resurrection where God's power is revealed in His ability to vanquish death and bestow the gift of life. The Sadducees were mistaken about the character of the resurrection life. See, Jesus is maintaining the fact of the resurrection here by an appeal to Scripture and an appeal specifically to God's covenant faithfulness. See, here's a very, very important point about biblical interpretation and a very practical point. See, in the context, Jesus is doing something. He's confronting and he's correcting and he's rectifying the error of the Sadducees. That means there's something he's not doing. He is not giving a full-blown, comprehensive, systematic treatment on the doctrine of the resurrection. So in other words, he's not answering every question you might have about life after death. As a matter of fact, he's answering basically one. And that means there may be 999 where you want to know the right answer is? I don't know. Because he doesn't tell us. Which means you want to know what biblical obedience is? I don't know. Because you have to go by what... This is part of... This is where it's hard to preach sometimes because points meld it. We have to go back to the first point. What is your authority? Do you look to God's word for simply what God's word says? And not add to it. He is here correcting their error and not answering and addressing. He's not teaching a seminary course on the resurrection here. He's in a conversation in a what commentators call a controversy story where he's being challenged. In real life, his authority is being challenged. The very things that are going to lead him to the cross to die for your sins and mine, that's what's going on in real life here. And he's answering this. And how does he do it? He cites Exodus chapter 3 verse 6 in order to correct and rectify their error. And remember what is going on in Exodus 3. In Exodus 3, God is revealing himself. He's giving his word to Moses in the burning bush. And the context for that is he is calling Moses to a very important task. He is calling Moses to lead and be the instrument of delivering his people out of slavery from Egypt. Where he could redeem his people. And so he's giving Moses hope and assurance Because Moses lacks confidence. Moses needs hope. You and I need hope. And he's giving Moses hope and assurance through the revelation of who he is. Through his self-revelation. Hope based on the authoritative word of God. Hope can be found nowhere else. And so God says to Moses, you need hope. You need assurance. Count on me. And who am I? I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Think about this. Aren't Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob dead? And Moses is say, and God is saying to Moses, I am presently their God. Bill Lane again points out, he says, why is this important? By designating himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the context of his self-revelation to Moses... 
The Lord presented himself as the God of the covenant. But here, the accent is placed primarily on the action of God, who protected the fathers and provided for their deliverance. He is not the protector, the savior of the dead, but of the living. If God had assumed the task of protecting the patriarchs from misfortune during the course of their life, but fails to deliver them from that supreme misfortune, which marks the definitive and absolute check upon their hopes, his protection is of little value. If the death of the patriarchs, the death of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the last word of their history, kind of like what the Sadducees believed, there's been a breach of the promises of God guaranteed by the covenant, and of which the formula of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the symbol. It is in fidelity to his covenant that God will that God resurrects the dead. See, do you hear this? The logic is very simple. God is the faithful God of the covenant. He's been faithful in the past. If Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were dead, God would not be faithful. God would not be true. God could not be counted on. And you and I would have no hope. But he says, I am the God of the living. Do you hear that wondrous, triumphant affirmation and promise in verse 27? But God is God of the living, not of the dead. See, now remember this doesn't answer every question, but what it does assure us of is this. He is faithful. He can be trusted. He can be surrendered to. He can be counted on. And therefore that gives us hope. And friends, we need this hope. Look out at the world today. Is this not an uncertain time that we live in? Is it not a dangerous time? Is it not a restless time? Look at our own lives. Look at your own life. There's constant change. The one thing that can be counted on all the time is what? Change. If we're honest, there's shattered dreams. There's changing plans. There's bitter disappointment. We need something we can count on. And the only thing that really is there that we can count on is God. And how do we know this? See, where does this hope push us to? Where does this text push us to? Where do we see the ultimate faithfulness of God? We see the ultimate faithfulness of God on the cross. I know this is looking at the whole book of Mark. This isn't quite there yet. We're moving towards that point. But where do we see God not giving up on humanity? Where do we see God ultimately being able to be counted on? It's while we were doing everything we could in our power to run away from Him, to avoid Him, to be prodigals, that He pushed and pursues and comes after us. All the way to the cross. Doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. So that our acceptance, our approval, our being somebody in life, our being loved depends not on our performance, depends on not whether you're a good husband or a good wife, a good parent, a good child, a good student. doesn't matter whether this sermon is good or whether it stinks and we should throw it away. It doesn't matter on our performance at all because God is faithful in the person of Jesus Christ. And we can count on Him. Friends, what is your authority? 
And what is your hope? Let's look to Jesus Christ and Him alone as we face the future. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You are a covenant-keeping, faithful, delivering, saving, protecting God. Thank You for how You reveal Yourself and that You are the God of the living, not of the dead. Lord, we give You praise and we pray now even as we come to Your table. We thank You that this is where we see Your ultimate hospitality. That You invite us to Your table to eat and drink by faith, spiritually, of the body and blood of Jesus. So Holy Spirit, be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.